You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your gentleness towards us. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that you made a way through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that through Christ we can find peace, we can find hope, we can find redemption, restoration. We love you, Lord. We give you thanks for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of my wife and how you've redeemed and restored the places of darkness and called her into light. And I pray that that hope, uh, Lord, that happens through the work of your Holy Spirit to inspire brothers and sisters here this morning. We pray for your power of your spirit. We thankful, we're thankful for the truthfulness of your word. Let us walk in that. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, amen. Well, this morning we're talking about how to live for Christ in today's culture. And it is of no surprise to you, I'm sure, if you've been around North Valley for long, to find out that your pastor has not always lived on the straight and the narrow, nor has my wife. And I pray that that's something that God would use to connect to a lot of people. Amen? And so I pray that that's something God would use to amplify a message of God's grace and his goodness towards people who need hope. And so I, I pray that that happens here this morning. This morning, as we're looking into God's Word, this is one of the strongest exhortations that the Apostle James is going to give, the brother of Jesus, uh, towards the church, the believers, to really evaluate whether they indeed actually have a, a, a life that's really living for Christ, or they just rooted in culture, and their God is self, or is their God their Savior, one of the greatest struggles I think that we face in America today is that we have a what's called a social faith. It's the idea that we come to church and that we sing songs and we apply biblical truths to our lives, and it's a very much a social fabric of America. And what Jesus is looking for is not a social affiliation for his church. He's looking for a saving revelation of the power of Jesus Christ as the Son of God who absolutely came to deal with those things that you can't deal with on your own. This unmet desire, this unmet fulfillment, this unmet guilt upon your life, that's the Lord saying, I'm the one who can forgive that. I'm the one who can fulfill you. I'm the one who satisfies truly. And James is writing to clarify and say, we're not after a, a social faith here. We're asking the question, do you have a saving faith? And so let's do this this morning. Let's stand, and we're going to read, I'll read God's Word, and then I'm going to walk through a couple of the dangers of not living this out, why you should live for Christ in culture, and then I'm going to answer the question as to how in the world do we do that. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 says this, what, quarrels, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, what I want to do is I want to point out the dangers of why in a world that you would not live for Christ. Looking back over my life, probably some of the most dangerous times of my life in in my journey with God was when I kept hearing the gospel message, meaning I'd go to church and I'd hear people talk about Jesus and I'd walk out and I would say, that's good, but it's not for me. And I kept doing that over and over and over again. And I was kind of in this position where I was on the fence about my faith. I just wasn't sure if I really wanted to live it out. And James warns us and says, that's actually the most dangerous position you can be in. And I told my wife the other day, I said, baby, this is one of those scatter messages uh, where literally I'll probably preach it and people will walk out and go, man, I don't know. This was a tough message. But I think churches need to hear this because it's God's word and we're not going to skirt areas of scripture just to be nice. We're going to be honest and truthful and share with you what God's word has to say. And here's my promise. I think what we're going to see today is if you choose to live a life that's on the fence, you're only hurting yourself, you're hurting God, your relationship with him, and you're hurting others. Look what James is going to show us. There's kind of three dangers in the uh, first few verses there, verses one through six. Verse one, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's asking a question and he's indicating that there's something wrong. There's a conflict with others. When you're not living out your faith, you constant, there's a, a, a challenge of creating conflict. You ever met people that just constantly, they're kind of like agitators. Wherever they go, drama springs up. And James is writing and he's saying, when, you're, when, when there's people that aren't going to live for Christ and they're in the midst of a community of other believers, it can cause a lot of conflict. It caused conflict with others. In fact, that word word quarrels in the Greek, it's polemos. It's where we get polemics. It means prolonged disputes and ultimately war. There is, when you're unrest with the God of the universe, there's this battle going on within you. And if you don't get it dealt with, 
it creates conflict wherever you go. It's like this dust cloud that follows over your life. And it's incredibly important to understand that when when we're not living for God, who is the CEO of the universe, we are, what I've said over and over again, you're out of line with your God-given design. You're just, it's not, you're not going to fire on all cylinders. Now, you may have a good life, but it's not a great life. And so what, what James is writing here, he's telling us, hey, there's a danger. If you don't live for Christ in the midst of culture, you're going to be at conflict with other people. Continually in verse 1, he says this. Look at the second part of verse 1. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says that there's this conflict with self. In other words, when you're on the fence with God and in your faith, there's this internal war that's going on with inside of you. There's not peace, there's war. The word passions in the Greek means hedon. It's where we get the word hedonist. It means uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill every passion, every promise of satisfaction and enjoyment. In other words, this rampant, uncontrolled heart wants to attach itself to anything that will fill it up in promise of life. And like what Leslie shared in her testimony, I should have been happy by the world standards. I had money, I had vacation, I had cars, I had everything, and I found myself, what, angry, empty. If we don't learn how to navigate living for Christ in the midst of a culture, and we decide to live for for the cultural uh, winds and the ways of the world, we're going to find ourselves not only conflict with others and conflict with self, but we're going to find ourselves conflict with God. Look at verse 2. James stops for a moment and he's going to remind us that we're still in conflict with ourselves. He elaborates on this before he tells us more about being in conflict with God. Verse 2 says, you desire and you do not have. That means that there's this continual lust for more. So you murder. That word murder literally indicates that there is a, when you get so upset with yourself and you're in such conflict and inner turmoil and war with yourself, there's this propensity to be violent or angry. And it could even lead to suicide. I remember when I was at odds with God so much and I was so disappointed and discouraged about where my life was headed at 18 years old. I'd been with a girl and I had been uh, just messing up all the relationships around me. I was at odds with my relationship with my father, my, uh, my school, the church. I felt like I had enemies everywhere. And I was so upset with myself and I, this thought came over my mind one day and I was driving down the interstate in Little Rock and I was just, I was so angry. You ever been so angry? You just turn up the radio really loud and you try to drown out everything. And so here I am blazing down the highway in this truck and I thought, this thought crossed my mind, just take your life. Just take the truck, run it off, hit that huge, uh, huge uh, concrete wall on the side of the interstate right there. Just take your life. I was at odds with myself. When you hear those kind of thoughts in your mind, you need to know that is absolutely the work of the devil. His desire is to destroy every good work or worker for God that he possibly can. He takes what's beautiful, distorts it, lies to you, and makes it broken, irreparable, irreconcilable, and empty. 
And James says, you're going to have this desire, this continual lust for more. If you have an unmet desire or an unmet uh, uh, something in your life and a lack of fulfillment, it is very easy to turn around and, and respond in anger or in violence. He says, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Verse 2b, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. The reason why people don't ask God a lot of times for help is because they're self-sufficient. A lot of times I didn't want to ask God for help before I knew Christ. I didn't want to ask God for help, one, because I didn't think he could really help me. Two, I didn't know if he really wanted to help me. And three, I thought I could help myself. And James says, look, you're at conflict with yourself. Verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. In other words, when you do pray and you're on the fence and you're living for the culture and you're not living for Christ, you lob up these prayers like, God, get me out of this mess just so I can make it through another day. But you have no intention of really serving the Lord. You just want to be relieved of your misery or your challenge or your struggle. And James is saying, don't pray with self in mind that you're the ultimate uh, aim or the uh, result of your prayer. Don't pray pray self-centered prayers. Pray God-centered prayers. James continues on and he says that you're going to have conflict with God in verses 4 through 6. He uses a shocking word. He says, you adulterous people. And he says that predominantly to a mixed uh, Jewish congregation of uh, messianic Jews and Jews that may be not fully sure that Jesus actually is the Son of God. And he uses this word adulterous people to to illustrate the unfaithfulness that they have. And they would have known this phrase and understood that God is uh, entered into with his, his believers, those who followed him, into this like marriage relationship. And he's highlighting, you've been unfaithful to the Lord. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And here's the crux of the verse that James is telling us. You better be careful if you're going to live for the world and you're not going to live for Christ. He says this, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Church, we've got to be radically different from the people around us. God's called us out to be distinctively different. We're the people that when somebody makes you mad, instead of retaliating with anger, you retaliate with blessing. When somebody goes against you and harbors bitterness, you overlook their offense and you forgive them in the name of Jesus. We're the people that instead of when we receive God's blessing on our business and it enables us to be incredibly wealthy and affluent, we don't take that affluence to, to highlight us. We take it to serve other people. So we, we deal with things different when we're surrendered to the Savior. And James is calling us to live a very, very different life. Verse 5, look what it says about conflict with God. People that are in conflict with God, they have a disregard for Scripture. They don't want to hear God's Word. James reminds his readers of this in verse 5. He says, or do you suppose it's of no purpose? He's talking about the scripture. He says, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that has made to dwell in us. In other words, do you not know that God's made you in such a way that he wants to be with you? He wants to love you. He wants to shower his blessing. But have you 
dismissed the scriptures? Have you disregarded them? The truth be known is when you're enamored with the world and you don't long for heavenly things and you're immersed in culture and Christ is not your savior, then there's a disregard for scripture every time it says something that offends you. And what the Lord's trying to do in that, he's trying to chisel your character, reform your nature. He yearns jealously. We're in conflict with God. Verse six says, but he gives more grace. Let's all say that together. But he gives more grace. Whatever distance you run from God, you're not too far off. He is a gracious God. He is a loving God. He is distinct and different from all other proclaimed to be gods. And he's a God of grace. And James even here says, look, you've got conflict with God. You've got conflict with yourself. You've got conflict with others. God gives more grace. His grace never runs short. You're never too far off. Therefore, it says, look, he says, God opposes the proud. It's the chief sin of all. I told you last week, jealousy and selfish ambition are terrible sins, but the mothership of all sins is pride because you're self-sufficient. You don't need a savior. And that phrase opposes the proud. Literally, it's like a military term. God is against the proud. He's not going to bless. He's not going to redeem and restore. You're going to find yourself at odds with God. He says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So every time you come to the Lord in a humble position, even though you've blown it, in some area of your life, if there's this humility that comes and you say, Lord, I messed up again. And the Bible says that he draws near to those who humble themselves, that God blesses those who humble themselves, that he gives grace to those who humble himself. Grace is something that you don't deserve, and that's why it's grace. And God's in the business of giving grace to his people. So how do we live for Christ in today's culture? This is one of the most unique portions, I think, in the book of James, where he's going to give us 12 exhortations on how to live distinctively different for Christ in the midst of culture. The first one is this. Look what it says. Submit to God. In verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. That word submit is another military term, and it means to rank under voluntarily. In other words, in your perception of who God is and who you are, you see God up here and you see yourself down here. You don't see it the other way around. God, I'm in charge. I'll petition you as I need. You follow out my prayers, I mean commands, I mean prayers, and do as I say. No, you need to, number one, to live for Christ on a daily basis. Submission is totally countercultural, especially for you men. But think of it in this realm. God is the commander-in-chief. You follow in the footsteps of the warrior who's gone before you and fought your battles ahead of time. And you walk in that and you go, I'll submit and follow in that. And so submission 
is something that if this is not happening in your life where you have a submission and you say, how do I submit, Ryan? This is how you submit. You put the word over your life and you get underneath it. And every time I get into a dispute with my wife or with anybody else, here's what I do. I say, well, we are under the authority of scripture. And so we're going to submit to God's ways. And that's how you submit. You submit and you go, well, I want to do it this way. And then you say to yourself, God, how would you do it? What do you want from me? Submit to God. You cannot be a Christian if you say, I do not choose to submit to God. Submission is crucial. Submission highlights divine authority over your life. This was the first picture I had when I became a Christian, that I had to get out of the way and let God drive my life. It was me driving everything. And I came to this realization that I've never submitted to God. I'm in control. God's not in control. The Bible says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, if you've found your life, you've dreamed it up, planned it up, living it out, but at the end of the day, you think This all leads to me. This doesn't lead to God. This is all about myself. This isn't something that's greater than me. It's all about me. The Bible says, Jesus said, if you find your life, I promise you, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. See, when I first met Jesus Christ... I was in the mountains of Colorado. I looked up at the skies. I saw the enormous beauty in creation, and I was overwhelmed. I came to a realization that there was a creator. There was a God. I'd seen testimonies of people like what you heard this morning from Leslie. I've seen that around. I'd heard people talk about Jesus, and I just began to think, I don't have it all figured out, so what if, God? I submit, and I give you everything. And I thought, I'll lose my old life. The way I wanted to live, I'm going to ask you to live. You give me the direction. You give me the new hope. You give me the new inspiration. And that's the starting point. Countercultural for us. When we come to the end of ourselves, we actually come to the beginning of a brand new eternal life. That's, that's countercultural. Sometimes you need to go to the end so that you can find the beginning. And Jesus teaches that. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Number two, how do you live for Christ? You resist the devil. Let's all say that together. Resist the devil. The word devil actually is diablos in Espanol. And you're thinking, man, Ryan, you are good with Spanish. Well, you didn't know this, but I lived in Mexico, Monterey, for three years as a little kid. Uh, my dad was in a med, uh, he, was, uh, he, we, he went broke early on, and so uh, kind of had a life change and decided that he was going to uh, be a psychiatrist. And so he said, well, we ran out of money. We spent it on uh, a master's program at Dallas Theological Seminary. So pack up the kids. We're moving to Mexico, and we're going to uh, get our, uh, become a doctor, a Christian psychiatrist. So we packed up, and we moved to Mexico, and that's how I can say the word diablos. 
That was a waste of time. I apologize. <laughs> resist the devil. Um, resist, again, it means that you stand against or you oppose. In other words, that there's no neutral territory between you and the devil. And to think in spiritual realms, some of you go, I don't know if I really believe in the devil, and I don't know if I believe in darkness. I want to tell you, I went up to Sedona uh, a couple of years ago, and I decided, you know what? I was teaching on something, and it had to do with like witchcraft and all this other spiritual weird stuff. And I was like, I'm going to go to Sedona, because supposedly it's like the second largest New Age capital of the world. So I'm like, I prayed it up, had all the pastors pray for me. I'm like, I'm going to go meet with the most spiritually wild card person I can find and interview him. So I go up there and I go to that little purple house. You know what I'm talking about? That little purple house in the middle of town. And it's like, you know, psychics and all this other stuff, mediums and spirit guides. And so I walk in and they, 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 they found out about me. They're like, so you're the pastor. And I'm like, yes, I am. And they're like, well, we would like to read your palm. I was like, no, you ain't touching me. Uh-uh, I'm good. I said, but I tell you, I do want to interview. So I did this long interview with this gal and she began to talk to me about how she tapped into the spirit world and that she, I, I interviewed her for an hour and a half and I got it on recording. And she talked to me about how she would enter into this spiritual realm and then begin to channel through mediums and find out, uh, learn and discuss with spirits about dead people and where they're at and what's going on and then trying to get information about the present. And then I got her to a point and I told her more about it. And I said, you know, that's, I said, I said, let me ask you, who, whose name are you calling upon? And she started telling me some of these names and they were, looked them up and they were paganistic, demonic uh, names. And I, I said to her, do you know that you're opening yourself up to a world of evil? And she said, you know, honestly, she said, as I've traveled through this and I try to get the results that I want for people to keep coming back, I find out that there's some scary, dark, dirty, demented stuff. And I try to stay away from those evil spirits. And I, and I told her, I said, man, you're playing with really dangerous darkness. So I just want to tell you, like, this whole thing about the devil and demons and angels and God, and it's real. You open yourself up to it, you're incredibly in a dangerous position. Don't play with horoscopes. Don't play with uh, mind readers. Don't play with psychics. Don't play with that stuff. James says, resist the devil. Stand against or oppose. You can't be neutral. When I went to Sinai, I'm not letting that person touch my hand and try to channel into my body. And I'm not messing with that, man. Jesus reigns. He rules. I'm good. Hallelujah. Amen. I don't need whatever you got. He says this, he will flee. Let me encourage you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Meaning this, you're stronger. As a believer, you're stronger and he can't hold you against your will or consent. If you resist 
the work of the enemy and temptation. You have these terrible thoughts leading you into darkness, leading you into despair, could crush your marriage, could crush your business, could do whatever. You know this is demonic, this is wrong, this is evil conscience, not going good. You have the power to resist that. And the Bible says he'll flee from you because he knows if you're playing with Jesus, you're going to lose. And so James says, if you resist the devil, that means stand against or oppose. It's not in neutral. You can't be in neutral. You stand against, he will flee from you. Incredible encouragement that you need to know that he cannot overcome you. So when you're in temptation, you, don't, you can't blame it on him. Remember what we've learned. Blame is, let's try that again. Blame is, there you go. So because of the power of Christ, you have a greater access and power to resist every single temptation that you face, every evil work from the evil one against you. But you must stand against, you cannot open yourself up. One of the first ministry moments I had that of darkness was this young kid down the street. He'd opened himself up to Ouija boards and all these real terrible demonic things. He was a cutter. He cut his wrists. He would hurt himself all the time. And he told me at night, evil spirits would come to him and tell him to take his life and to go in and hurt other people. And I asked him, what have you been doing? And he said, well, I wanted to find power And so I drew a pentagram on the ground and I walked in it and I stood in it and I asked for the power of anything that would fill me with a new power and an understanding. And from that point, I felt like I had this greater visitation from evil. I'm telling you, don't mess with that stuff. James turns the corner and he says, here's what you need to do. You need to draw near to God. What's the the antidote to evil? Draw near to God. Look what it says, verse eight, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It's a promise, church. It's a promise that if you draw near to God, he'll match you step for step. He's not distant, far off, and when you've blown it, you've screwed up, and you say, okay, God, I'm I'm going to church today. He doesn't go, well, I want to see if you make it three or four times before I come near to you. He's not saying that. He's saying every single step that you take towards him, he's taking another step. Perfect illustration of that is the story of the prodigal son. Son is asked for his father's inheritance. Jesus tells this story really to illustrate his love for you and me. And he tells the story of this son who basically wants his father's inheritance, takes all that he can, and he goes and squanders it on loose and licentious living. And the kid wakes up one day and finds out this was a waste. I've blown it. But will dad ever take me back? And so he decides, you know what, man, Lord, I've done wrong. He confesses it. And so he says, I'm going to make my way back home. And some of you are in that position. You've blown it. You've ran away from God. You're wondering, okay, maybe I'll take a step back towards him to kind of move back into a relationship with God. And you're wondering, how will the father respond to me? The story goes is that the father sees the kid coming, this rebellious kid coming from a long way off. And the father doesn't stand there on the porch and go, well, let's see him come. I hope he crawls up and begs for mercy. 
Now, it says in the story that the father runs off of the porch and then finds his son, embraces his son, kisses his son, throws a party for his son and says, you know, he's been gone, but finally he's home. So what is the antidote for living for Christ is this commitment that you're going to draw near to God and the promise is that God's going to draw near to you. Even in the moment of this time right here, you say, God, come near to me. I want to be near you. He comes. The story of the prodigal son is not so much about the lost son. I think it's about the searching father. The father loves his kids and he'll draw near to them. Number four, James tells us that we need to cleanse our hands of sin. This is the imagery here of a ceremonial ritual cleansing of oneself before worship. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. James right here uses this as a reminder to cleanse oneself of outward sins that are visible in your life. That there's this process that you need to go through that there's this cleansing that needs to happen, that you're carrying around this baggage, this dirt, this grime, this stain upon your life. And there's this cleansing that needs to happen where you, you wash your hands and you say, Lord, forgive me. I, I don't want to live like this anymore. And James calls for a cleansing. This is the process of repentance that he's going to help us to understand. And he says that these would be the outward sins, the things that are obvious. In verse, uh, in verse 8, look what he says. He says, purify and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is to purify your sinful hearts. James uses this as a reminder to purify oneself of the inward sins, the sins that nobody knows, jealousy, anger, impure motives, a hatred, a bitterness. James says, purify your hearts. Sometimes you can't get better until you face the things that are going really, really wrong. And this incredible importance I'm learning as a life of a Christian, not just as a pastor, I would say, is managing the inner life. That's the life that nobody sees. The other day, you know, a couple of weeks ago, somebody stood up and said, man, my life's been changed. God's working in my marriage. And then he points down and he says, this man on the stage has been a big part of it. And I walked away from that. And I thought, the man on the stage. Here's what you don't know. How's, how's the inner life of the man on the stage? Because that's my greatest responsibility is to navigate Walk with the Lord on the inside. If you as a Christian don't purify your hearts, meaning take care of the inner parts that no one sees, then you're not going to be walking and living for Christ. You're just living in the culture. And James says you need to purify your sinful hearts. Step one of repentance is this, is that you confess Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Step one of repentance, and that's turning away from sin, is confession. You say, Lord, I, need, I, need, I acknowledge I've sinned against you. I've done this wrong. 
Step two of repentance is that we have a heart of contrition. And James helps us to understand that by using some emotional language here. Look what it says in verse nine, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let's all say that together, be wretched. I'm like, what does that mean? It means to feel broken over one sin, deeply grieved. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was an old preacher from London, and he called it a soul distress. You need a soul fatigue sometimes over your own sin, and your heart needs to feel it. And James here says, be wretched about sin. In other words, here's the deal. You, it, you can't get better unless you acknowledge what's broken and not working. And you've you got to want change. You've got to ask God, would you work in my heart? Would you help me to feel a brokenness over my sin that's, and be grieved over it? That's step two of repentance is a heart of contrition. But you really feel it. Some of you say, well, I don't feel, I'm not much of a feeler. I'm more of a thinker. Well, then I say to you, you need to pray because you're human. You have a heart. Ask God to give you emotion over the things that you need appropriate emotion for. Number seven, mourn over sin. He says, be wretched and mourn. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. This mourning means a deep grief and despair. It's the idea to be genuinely sad, like as if a family member had passed away or something's terribly going wrong. You ought to have some upset mourning over sin. This is following in that second step of repentance where there's this contrition that you're really genuinely feeling that. Number eight, we see that we need to weep over sin. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. You know, weeping is the grievance, it's mourning, it's crying, it's feeling the sense of deep cleansing. When you cry about something, you can honestly think, well, you know, sometimes weak people cry, but no, actually, research shows that strong people cry because they have appropriate emotion over the situation and the context that they're going through. And it's a very godly thing to be completely living out the emotions that God's given you. And when you weep over sin, it's this cleansing that can take place over your life and it's helpful and it's healing. Number nine, stop laughing about sin. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, I, this bothers me a lot. When I first became a Christian, I went and worked with this Christian organization called Noah's Ark Whitewater Rafting Company. And it was in Colorado and in the summers and there was a house that I went to. It was like a fraternity house, but a bunch of Christian guys. But half of them, I don't even know if they were really walking with the Lord. And I'm a fired up young Christian guy. And they're all listening to music. It just says bad things. And they're like loving it. And don't get me wrong. I love secular music. I listen to a lot of different kinds of music. But when the messages are overtly wrong or evil or dark, and there's laughter and joy and celebration in that, I find that hypocritical. I find that disturbing. So it's like, for me, I'll just tell you, for me, I watched one time, you know, um, this movie called Pulp Fiction. You guys seen Pulp Fiction? Some of you are like, yes, uh, well, yeah, yeah. Don't want to say if I have or not. So there's this humor in that, and I'm just going to say, be careful. Getting you to laugh at evil things 
is incredibly damaging to the soul. The Bible says, don't sit in the seat of mockers. Don't delight in evil. And what James is saying here is if you're laughing about sin all the time, you check your heart. What is wrong with you? He says this, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Is there inappropriate laughter about songs or movies or things that you're watching or doing or scenarios that play out? Be careful. Guard your heart, the Bible says. My exhortation to you, stop laughing about sin. If it's wrong, what is sin? It's anything that's inappropriate, immoral to God. It's less than the best of what God desires. If you're laughing about sin over others in your life or your own life, you're walking culturally. You're not walking with Christ. Number 10, you humble yourself before God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That means that he'll lift you up, that he'll give you a name that is worthy of being praised, that he will honor you. And he will reward you. This is what we need to be doing. We need to not be laughing about sin. We don't need to be, we need to not, we need to weep over sin. We need to mourn over sin. We need to be wretched over sin, feel a sense of brokenness over sin. And you say, how do I get there? Well, you don't conjure it up from yourself. You ask God, God, give me a heart like yours. I want to be in line with the way you've designed me to be. You're king. I'm going to follow after you. But you're going to have to change my heart. Humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself literally means make yourself lower. In other words, okay, I'm going to humble myself. I'll follow you. I'll live for you. I'll confess where I need to confess, and I'm going to change. That's the third step in repentance is that you change. You commit to change. You turn away from the old way, and you start a new way. Two closing points. Don't gossip or slander about others. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And when he says speak evil, that's mindless, thoughtless, critical, uncontrolled speech. And gossip and slander, they never made it in the the list of the seven deadly sins. That was pride, greed, lust, malicious envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. Those were medieval monks that came up with this list. But if I could encourage those monks to add two more, I would have said you ought to add gossip and slander. Because these are horrendous sins that break apart Christian community in stunt spiritual growth. Gossip is saying something that's untrue about people or it's saying something true about people in the wrong context at the wrong time. It's chatting too much about somebody or something in the wrong place. Slander is when you say something that's totally a lie and it results in total defamation. There was a phrase during World War I and II, and it said, uh, loose lips sink ships. And it was the idea that if people were talking about locations of soldiers that were at war in their naval ships, then the enemy could intercept that information and then sink the ships. James here says, don't gossip or slander about others. 
It's incredibly harmful and hurtful. You'll destroy the work that God's doing in that person's life. Closing, he says, the one who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. In other words, that if you speak against your brother and you talk bad, you gossip, you slander, in other words, you're placing yourself above God's law. You're not, a, you're not listening to God's law. You've put yourself here and you've said, you know what, I'm in control. I'll do what I want to say. I'll do whatever I want to do and say whatever I want to say. He says he speaks evil against the law and judges the law. In other words, he's put the law below him. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Last point, he says, remember this, that you're not a judge. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, and he who is able to save and destroy. But you, but who are you to judge your neighbor? You're not the judge when it comes to other people on this spiritual journey. You can't tell whether someone's a Christian or not a Christian. You might have an opinion about it, but ultimately their eternal address, their destination is in the hands of one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And as a church, while we're called to live radically different, Christians radically different, we don't need to busy ourselves with trying to point fingers and say, well, this person's not a Christian, that person is a Christian. Our position is this, is Jesus is the judge. I'll be quick to forgive. I'm going to walk and focus on what God's doing in my life and live for him, amen? Let me invite Ian and the worship team up. Lord, I pray that this word would rest on us this morning, Lord, and I pray that, number one, God, if there are people here today that have never taken that step to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, is that they would walk in this holy discipline of submission today, that they would enter into a submission to you. They'd submit themselves to God and say, Lord, come right now. I submit myself to you. You're the Lord, not me. Save my life. I confess I've sinned and I need your forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray as we enter into this time of worship, God, that we would look at our own personal lives and say, God, I want to rearrange some of the inner uh, life here in my personal well-being here to honor you, reflect you, and live differently, distinctly for Christ in the midst of culture. God, rain down upon us your grace and your goodness and your mercy and help us to keep walking forward in grace, truth, in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.